Amen. Several years ago, I played uh, baseball. Um, let's see, I'm 25, so it would have been about 16 years ago. Uh, I played baseball and uh, made the all-star team. And so uh, it was really, you know, one of the probably most memorable years of baseball I've ever played. Uh, and I had a lot of good years of baseball. And uh, so I uh, made the team, and so, you know, they get some of the players from each team. And, well, one of the coaches' uh, sons, of course, you know, made the team. One of the dads was coaching. And so it created a problem because me and the coach's son played the same position. And me and the coach's son were about the same skill set. And so, of course, I'm always going to lose in that situation, right? You know, dad's going to put his son in the game. And so I had a dilemma as a little nine-year-old. What does this look like? How do I figure this out? And so as a nine-year-old, I had to figure out, okay, I made the all-star team, but there's a chance now that I might play, not play very much. And so I've got to do something to make myself different. Okay, and so here's what I did. I decided that I would get really good at bunting a baseball. Now, if you've never played baseball, bunting is basically where you take the bat and you catch the ball with the bat, and it just rolls right out in front of the plate, and you trick the defense into thinking that you're going to swing, and then you turn and bunt. We good with that, right? All right, so I got really good at that. Most kids, especially kids, uh, you don't see bunting a whole lot in baseball today, but most kids are afraid to do that because you position yourself in front of the baseball, you're squared as though the ball is going to hit you, and most kids are afraid of the ball. I was not, and so I was, got really good at doing that, so good at doing that that I batted over 700 in All-Stars that year because I was fast and I could bunt. So I had to differentiate myself. I had to make myself different in order to succeed and that area. Now, I will tell you this, uh, that because of that scenario, I can see, uh, you know, in that situation, I had to work really hard in order to make myself different. And I can see how in, in some ways that has followed me throughout life, that I've found myself in situations to where I had to work really hard in order to be different. Now, sometimes that can be really good, like in that situation as a nine-year-old. It really worked out to my favor. I started every all-star game. I batted over 700. Uh, we went to the World Series. It was a phenomenal year. Uh, so that was a really good memory for me. And it was because I worked really hard at being different, and I was rewarded for doing that. Now, in our world today in which we live, um, different is, uh, I don't know, different today really is not celebrated as much. And I feel like in our world today that assimilation is the key, that we should all do and say and believe the same thing. And so as believers, what's happened in the church is unfortunately uh, we have morphed into that assimilation funnel, if you will, uh, to where we aren't as different as we used to be, maybe. We're not really bent on being different. You see, different really just means being uh, unlike or not like everyone else. It means not being like everyone else. That, that means different. You know, I thought as I was preparing for tonight, I thought of a lot of things that were different. 
you know, you, maybe you know people that you would say are different. Maybe you know situations that are different. You know Sesame Street. We grew up with Sesame Street, and it would say these four things, which one doesn't belong, right? One of those is different. Well, there's a difference in being different and being set apart. You see, the first blank on your handout, and I don't think it's on the screen, it says that as Pharisee, well, their self-worth was tied to their ability to differentiate themselves from others, to differentiate themselves. Pharisees said, hey, if this is what God's Word says, how can we make it better? How can I do more? And so they came up with, uh, you know, what was it, 300 and uh, some odd laws that were positive, 365 laws that were positive and uh, 200 and some odd laws, 240 something that were negative. And, uh, and so they created over 600 laws that they said, if you follow these, then not only are you a believer, but you are a super believer. And so they worked really hard at being different. Well, tonight I want to tell you that God did not save you to be different. God saved you to be set apart. You see, when we set out to pursue difference, what we end up is separated. But when we set out to be what God called us to be, which is set apart, well, we end up where God wants us to be. You see, different means that we're not like everyone else. But what set apart means is that we are reserved for special use. It means that we're reserved for special use. In your own life, you are reserved for special use. When I played nine-year-old All-Stars, I became reserved for special use. I was the only person on the team that could bunt a baseball. And even when the other team knew that I was going to bunt and I was leading off, I still batted over 700, which means seven out of ten times they didn't get me out. You see, the statistics are way higher for you as a believer that when God sets you apart for special use, you bat a thousand, which means you're 10 out of 10. And so for us as believers, we need to know and understand that yes, we are different, but we're different because we're set apart. We're not different because we chose to be or because we want to be. You see, I can differentiate myself from you. Now, if we both had hair, I could shave my head, but we'll go ahead and get that joke out of the way, right? Uh, but there, I can dress different than you. I can talk different than you. I can act different than you. I can go different places. I can differentiate myself apart from you. But what I cannot do is I cannot set myself apart. I can't do that on my own. I have to have an outside influence to do that. This sanctifying or this setting apart is the distinguishing mark of all believers. Think about it. As I thought about this, I thought about uh, Israelites. And they were in where? They were in Egypt. They were in and amongst the Egyptians. And yet what? They were set apart. Why were they set apart? Because God intended to make a nation out of Abraham. And what did he do? He removed them from the tyranny of Egypt. He led them across uh, the Re through the Red Sea and across the desert. For what? To the promised land for special use. Think about the uh, Babylonians when the Assyrians uh, took the Israelites and, and they find themselves in Babylon. And in Jeremiah 29, many people's favorite chapter, where they say, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We love that verse, but it is in the midst of what? It is in the midst of 
captivity. And so what does God tell them in Jeremiah 29? He says, get to know your neighbors. You're going to be here a while. And in fact, they were there for over 70 years. And so they were in the midst of them, but they were set apart for special use. You see, as believers, we have to be reminded, as a legalist, as we'll get to in a minute, let me remind you, God loves you. God set you apart for special use, and it had nothing to do with your goodness, and it had nothing to do with your obedience, and it had nothing to do with your ability to accomplish things. It had everything to do with the one, capital O, who set you and me apart. You see, this sanctifying is our distinguishing mark, but this sanctity was never intended to cause us to be prideful. It was intended to humble us. You see, the reality is that God chose me, as Pastor Tony talked about this past Sunday, God chose you in spite of ourselves, right? In spite of ourselves, that God would choose me. But unfortunately, legalism was the result of this pride that the Pharisees had. Several weeks ago, I talked a lot about Pharisees. You can go back on the website and listen to that. And so the Pharisees took this chosen status and they uh, basically expanded or inflated this into pride because of who they were. And so we'll get a working definition then of legalism tonight. Uh, legalism believes that works are our obedience. Legalism believes that our obedience is either the way to or the reason for salvation. That's the way that you get saved. Some people may believe that, you know, if you do the right things, if you say the right things, or it is the reason for that, hey, you did a great job, and so as a reward for your obedience or your works, this is the result that you get to be saved. You see, legalism, as I, again, have mentioned, I am a recovering legalist, definitely flows out of the best of intentions. If you're here tonight and you have this angst in your heart that you feel like you have to do in order to receive acceptance from God, it is because you intend on doing good, that you desire to do the right thing. That is not a bad thing. It turns into something that's bad, but it's not a bad thing initially that it flows out of the best intentions. And so what legalism tends to do as it, it grows is it tends to create its own hyperversion of Christianity based on whatever you think it should be. And so, you know, it varies from place to place. You know, some people have a different emphasis on certain sins. And so, you know, they'll say, well, if you do this or if you do that, then you're not saved. Or, you know, it'll attempt to eliminate certain sins. And so they'll say, well, you, you have to put this safeguard in or you can't do this or there's no way that you're following Jesus. You see, legalists never see themselves as legalists. They see themselves as obedient. So if you're here tonight, and you're a Baptist, let me remind you, and you live in the South, let me remind you, you have a hint of legalism in you. Now, some of you, you may have a lot, and some of you may have a little. I hope, I hope a lot of you have a little. Uh, but everyone has this tendency to believe that because of our flesh. And it starts with, Hey, man, I'm being obedient. I'm doing what God called me to do. If this is good, then this has to be great. And that's how the Pharisees, you know, went down that path. You see, here's the first sign that you're a legalist. It's that there's more of an emphasis on the implications of Scripture 
than the explicit commands of Scripture. There's more of an emphasis on the implications. And so what we do as legalists is we begin to carry that thought out and we say, we imply, well, here's what Scripture is implying. If Jesus said this is bad, well, then this, you know, actually, the thought of that must actually be way worse than that. And so the focus becomes on what is implied. And thankfully, legalists can tell you exactly what Jesus was implying. Isn't that so helpful? That was a joke, by the way. You see, legalism takes the desire to be faithful to Scripture and turns it into subtle additions. And so again, Scripture becomes insufficient, not intentionally, uh, but through the fact of, well, if this is good, then this must be better. And so what happens is this implication-based approach destroys our freedom in Christ. Because here's the reality. As I mentioned earlier, God did not choose you before the foundation of the world. In D group, we're reading Psalm 139, and he says, before the foundation of the world, you knew me. In my mother's womb, you knew me. It is not because we are good. That is not the reason. Now, some of you are awesome, all right? But it is not because of that that God chose you. The reality is God chose you because of who he is. And our freedom comes from the reality that we're fully known, that God knows everything about us, and yet he still chooses to love us, right? I mean, who really knows everything about you? The closest is probably your spouse, and yet, guess what? They still love you. Isn't that encouraging? But Jesus knows all of your thoughts. He knows, you know, as the psalmist writes in 139, he says, search me and know my thoughts, O God. He knows everything that there is about you and still yet pursues a relationship with you. That is called freedom. You see, when we start putting implications on Scripture, we begin stripping away the freedom that Jesus died on the cross for us to have. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, there was a, a church that, you know, God was moving and, and things began to happen. And here, here's what took place. They began to decide who was saved and who was not. And here's what it was based upon. It was based upon what you did. And it got so ridiculous that if you played golf, this is true, if you played golf, you could not be a Christian. And so the implication, and so imagine the freedom that was taken away for everyone in town who loved to play golf. And so they said, hey, if you're a member of a country club, then you can't love Jesus. And so this implication-based Phariseeism, if you will, began to strip away all of the freedom. And so then confusion came. And then guilt and shame came because all of, of these Pharisee laws that began to come out. And so it, it, was, it was a crazy thing. But here's what it did. It tainted my freedom. And I began to have a, a misconstrued view of what does freedom in Jesus really look like. Does freedom in Christ, and, and this was their point, is that if you have freedom in Christ, then you can go off and do whatever you want. And God doesn't have any control over that if he gives you grace. And so if you can go do whatever you want, well, then we're going to have a bunch of people who are sinning and claiming the name of Jesus, and that's going to give churchgoers a bad name. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. That was what I experienced. You see, the reason is they never allowed any room for grace and mercy. Never allowed any room. And when we think about grace and mercy, you see, justice 
Justice is getting what you do deserve, right? You do something wrong, you speed, you get a ticket, well, you deserved it. That's justice. But grace, well, grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? That's what grace is. Jesus, the Bible says in John 1, 14, he was full of what? Grace and truth. And so grace is that you and I get what we don't deserve, that we don't deserve heaven for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, for there's none righteous, no, not one, that the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. So we get grace through Jesus. We get what we don't deserve. We get eternal life. We get forgiveness of sin. We didn't earn that, but we get it because of grace. Grace gives us salvation in spite of the fact that we can't, nor did we earn it. But for the next few minutes, what we're going to talk about is mercy. You see, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. You see, what we do deserve is separation from God. You see, the wages of sin is death. What is death? Death is separation. And so what we do deserve is separation. We do deserve the penalty for our sin. But because the grace that we are granted forgiveness of sins, and because of mercy, we are not um, made to pay the penalty for our sin, that's what mercy is. And so if you're in the room tonight, and you're constantly condemned by your own thoughts and actions, let me read a verse to you. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So this, this afternoon, if you're here and you are tied up because you have failed, His mercies are new every morning. That's what mercy is is that you're not getting what you do deserve. And here's what the enemy is going to do to you, especially through legalism, is the enemy is going to condemn you for the fact that you don't deserve it. The Bible says in Revelation that the enemy is an accuser of the brethren. And let me remind you, he's really good at that, especially when it comes to works. And so what he's going to do is to convince you that you're not good enough, that you don't deserve mercy. You see, grace is what happens to us, and mercy is what doesn't happen to us. And so what I hope to do tonight, my prayer for you and for us tonight, is that you realize what mercy really is. It's not that you've never heard it before. It's that through legalism, we often forget what it is. You see, mercy is what doesn't happen to us. And the worst thing that legalism does is it casts mercy aside. You see, mercy is one of the distinguishing marks of a believer. It's what sets us apart. But in legalism, mercy is available but through limitations. It's available through limitations. Legalists fear that showing too much mercy will lead to compromise and half-hearted obedience. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul said this. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here's the problem that legalists have with mercy, is that mercy is often relegated to a response and not to a rescue. Is that the legalists desire so much to have skin in the game that they believe that their reception, that them receiving mercy, had something to do with them. That because of their response to God, that they received mercy. And and I don't want to read anything into the Scripture here, and I'm not implying that this was Paul, but as I read 1 Timothy 1.13 over and over and over, he says, I was a blasphemer. So he says, I was a sinner. But I received mercy because I acted in ignorance. The reality is mercy did not show up in Paul's life when he got saved. That is not when mercy showed up. And we're going to unpack that in just a second. You see, legalism believes that mercy is a result of a person's response to Jesus. But mercy is far greater than that. In other words, legalists need mercy because of what they have done. And so a legalist will say, hey, I made a mistake. I need to be forgiven. You know, I I committed this sin. I need to be forgiven. I'm feeling condemnation. I need to be forgiven. And so legalists view mercy as a response to their sin and what they have done. But let let me enlighten you maybe tonight. Mercy is not about what you have done. Mercy is about who you are. Listen to me. Mercy is not about what you have done. You know, again, I find it interesting, and I'm not reading into the text, but Paul lists all the things that he's done. He says, I act in ignorance, and I receive mercy. Mercy is not what you have done. Mercy is to address who you are. There has to be a change to the core of who you are. Because here's what the Bible Bible says, all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says, because of Adam and Eve, we are born with sin nature. It is not what you've done that has condemned you. It is your nature that has condemned you. Does that make sense? It is because of what we have done is an action out of our nature. And so if you think that mercy is a response to your actions, mercy is a response to your nature. That God has saved you to redeem your nature. Does that make sense? Man, I'm telling you, that lights my fire, all right? That sets me up. Mercy did not show up when you needed a reprieve. Mercy was pursuing you your entire life from the first time you ever committed a sin because sin, unfortunately, is our nature. So how does your heart respond to that? Well, the sad part is, one of the most difficult parts of legalism is that legalists don't extend mercy to others because they've never adequately received it themselves that you don't believe that God can love you that you think oh well you don't know what I've done God does you don't know you know you don't know the thoughts that I have well what did Paul say I love Romans 7 because it gives me hope he says the things that I don't want to do I do and the things that I don't want to do uh, I do and the things that I do want to do I don't do is that you that's me sometimes right And so what Paul is saying here is, look, there is hope that you have to receive mercy, that you don't have to earn anything. It's okay. You don't have to earn anything. You see, sometimes the hardest person to extend mercy to is yourself. And so if you're constantly reminded of your failures, if you're constantly reminded of your inability 
to measure up. Here's the best advice that I can give you. It's to agree. Because what a legalist tries to do is to work their way out of it. Yeah, but... Yeah, but, but I plan on doing this. Well, yeah, well, I'm going to ask God to forgive me for that. Or, yeah, I'm going to ask that per, Or, here, I'm going to do this, right, to make up for it. Because that's what a legalist does. They live in a cycle of do. I've always got to do. This is what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That when you realize that mercy is available, that grace comes in and helps to shore that up. You see, we don't extend mercy to ourselves because we deserve it or because we think we've earned it. We extend mercy to ourselves because the Father has extended mercy to us. So here is the gospel truth for you tonight. Here's the gospel truth. You are qualified for the mercy of God when you were born. You were qualified for the mercy of God when you were born. Because the very first day that you took your breath, God, sent, God was on a mission to extend mercy to you. God was on a mission to extend grace to you. God was on a mission to redeem you. Isn't that what the psalmist says in 139? That in, when I was in the womb, that you knew me, my innermost parts you woven together, right? And so God was on a mission to redeem you. In the book of Jonah, God instructed Jonah, you, you know, you may have heard the story before, to go to a town called Nineveh, right? Nineveh was a, uh, a very sinful town, and so he sent him to Nineveh. Now, if you've ever read the story, you know that Jonah did not go to Nineveh uh, initially. Nineveh was about 500 miles, 550 miles northeast of Samaria, and at the time, it was the second largest city in the world. Now, Nineveh was known to be a very carefree city. You may have heard many things about Nineveh. And uh, in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 15, Zephaniah says this. He says, this is the exultant city that lived securely. He's talking about Nineveh. That said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So Nineveh was... Not light, let's say. And so God sent Jonah to go to Nineveh because God wanted to redeem the Ninevites. And so what did, what did Jonah do? Well, Jonah went to Joppa where he decided to board a ship to go to Tarshish. Again, you've probably heard the story. He decided that he would go the opposite direction of Nineveh, which was to Tarshish, right? And which was 2,500 miles the other way, which is a very long way. And so in Jonah 1.5, this is what the Bible says. They get on, they get on the ship, and uh, the Bible says that immediately uh, the seas are uh, roaring, and so, you know, the boat is being tossed to and fro, and it says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid, so the people on the boat that were with Jonah, and they each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he laid down, and he was fast asleep. So, you know, get this picture. God's called Jonah to go somewhere. He doesn't tell anyone. He pays the fare to get on a ship to go in the opposite direction. He gets on the ship, and immediately there's this terrible storm. Jonah's sleeping down uh, below, and up top, they're tossing things off of the ship, trying to lighten the load. 
So here's Jonah, content in ignoring the command to show compassion and to extend God's mercy. Instead, Jonah was all cozied up below the deck asleep. All the while, up on the upper deck, those around him were fighting for their lives, desperately attempting to try anything in an attempt to save themselves. Now I'm going to reread that and I want you to think about modern day America. All the while those around him were fighting, desperately attempting to try anything in an attempt to save themselves. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? You see, it sounds very familiar not only to our, common, our, our current culture, but it also sounds very similar to legalism. You see, the world around us, we could say, is tossing things overboard left and right. Morals, principles, anything that resembles anything of Christianity. In a desperate attempt for what? In a desperate attempt to find something that will bring peace in the midst of the storm. And yet, for Jonah and for us, the only one that can bring peace is Jesus. You see, we found ourselves really in the same situation that Jonah's in. You see, the truth is not only were the sailors in desperate need for God to intervene, so was Jonah. Jonah just didn't know it. You see, Jonah's in the bottom of the ship thinking everything's fine, that he's not going to extend mercy to Nineveh, that he's going to go the other way. And so the question as I began to think about that is this, is that have we been so lulled to sleep in our own areas of comfort and neighborhoods and workplaces and families that we're not showing compassion and extending mercy? Is that possible? Have we forgotten the depths of which God had to go in order to reach us and to rescue us? Look, I don't know what you think about yourself, but as a recovering legalist, I can tell you what I think about myself. And that is that my heart is constantly looking at the sin in my life. And my heart is constantly attempting to condemn me for all of the things that I've done wrong in my life. And were it not for grace and mercy and my understanding of those things, then I would have ran and you would have done the same thing. Because in and of yourself, you do not have the ability to withstand the onslaught of condemnation that the enemy tosses, especially from legalism. See, in Jonah chapter 1, look what happens. Verse 6, it says, very next verse, so the captain came down. So Jonah snored in the belly of the uh, ship, and uh, the captain comes down. He says, hey, what do you mean, you sleeper? He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. He's saying, wake up. You know, I, I would think that the same thing could be said to many people, even in church today, is wake up. What is it going to take to get our attention? I mean, as I thought about this, how is it that it wasn't Jonah who came to his senses? Right? Here's what, the, here's what the church world thinks today. Now, I'm not saying this is us. I'm just telling from legalism. Uh, legalism thinks that at some point that enough people are going to do the right thing and this ship's going to turn around. That's what legalism believes. That enough people are going to get together and enough people are going to do the right thing and then all of a sudden we're going to obey our way 
back to where we need to be. That is not going to happen. I, I just I hate to bust your bubble, but that's not going to happen. Here's Jonah asleep in the bottom of the ship, much like our world today. And it wasn't Jonah who, who had this epiphany and thought, man, I, I'm doing the wrong thing. Man, i got to go to Nineveh. God didn't call me to go to Tarshish, but that did not happen. It wasn't God who forced Jonah to wake up. You don't see, that, like in uh, Acts 11, that God sent an angel to wake Peter up. God didn't send an angel and shake Jonah and say, bro, wake up, man, you're doing the wrong thing. That did not happen. So Jonah didn't wake himself up. God didn't send somebody, uh, an angel, to force him to get up. What did he do? He sent the captain, an actor in the scene of Jonah's life, to mobilize Jonah to wake up. Someone who, look what he said. He says, uh, arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God is what he says. So in other words, this guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He, God is using someone who's not even following Jesus to tell Jonah, buddy, wake up. Jonah, I love you. Jonah, I have a plan for you. Jonah, I should drown you in the water because you're disobeying me. But I love you not because of what you are doing. Do you see the picture of mercy? It is not because of the wrong. I, Jonah, I caught you red-handed, buddy. But because of that, I'm not going to condemn you in that. I am going to show you mercy. You see, tonight we need to realize the mercy that came to our rescue. The one that sent a rescue team out to save you from your sinful realities is the same God who desires to send you on the same mercy mission. Jonah was on a mercy mission. Jonah was sent to show mercy to God's mercy to Nineveh. Do not forget, believer, the mercy that was shown to you that God intends to extend to those around you. You and I are on mercy missions. Listen, we are not on the ship to sleep. We are on the ship to serve and to row. Jonah's down, everybody's doing the work. Jonah's snoring. So what is this telling us tonight? That just as God, just as God called Jonah to Nineveh, God is calling you and God is calling me. He is calling us to respond to the mercy that we have received by giving the mercy that we have received. To respond to the mercy that we have received because of the mercy that we have received. Now, I don't know what that translates to in your life. And I didn't want to chase rabbits here. But, you know, there may be somebody in your life that you need to go to and you need to say, I love you and I forgive you. That you're going to show mercy. Because that's what God did to you and to me, right? Isn't that what God did to us? That while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we started pursuing God, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we got good enough. It wasn't when we did the right things. It was while we were sinners. And so for us as believers, that's the mark. How could you forgive someone who did that to you? How could you show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it? And the reality is, no one deserves it. And so, 
whatever the translation in your heart that needs to be, that you need to give mercy because you received mercy. You see, if you get a chance, you can go back and read the story of Jonah continues with Jonah being tossed overboard and being swallowed by a fish. Eventually, he was spit out on land. Again, mercy of God. This is typically the highlight of the book of Jonah, which, by the way, I want to go on record by saying, I believe it, just so you know. You know, there's, you know, this, you know, well, was Jonah swallowed by a fish? Yes. Was Jonah there for three days? Yes. Did the, did the fish spit him out on the land? Yes. I choose to believe that, okay? That's Matt. So Jonah was spit out, and, and so here we know the story, Jonah and the well, right? So this is typically the highlight of the book of Jonah, and certainly what the book is known for, and will be a great conversation when I get to heaven. I got questions, all right? I got questions. But may I offer a different angle tonight? In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah ended up getting to Nineveh. It was a big city, second largest in the world at the time. And Jonah shared the gospel. And guess what the people of Nineveh said? Thank you. you got to be kidding me. God loves us in spite of all that we've done. That's the best news we've ever heard. And the Bible says that they believed God. And not only did they believe God, they said, we got to do something about this. And so they called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God showed them mercy, someone who didn't deserve it, someone who had blasphemed God, someone who had turned their back on God, someone that was not set apart until Jonah showed up and said, y'all are different, but God wants to set you apart. See the difference? You see, could it be that the story of Jonah is more about a God who shows mercy not only to Jonah, but also to a people who didn't get what they did deserve? Nineveh deserved destruction. Remember what Zephaniah said? A lair for wild beasts. Now, I know that when you're raising two-year-olds, you feel like your house is a lair for wild beasts, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about sinfulness, okay? So in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1, it says that this displeased Jonah exceedingly. and He was angry, which is strange. And he prayed to the Lord, verse 2, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, I told you they were going to do that. To which God was like, well, duh, that's why I sent you. He says, Jonah says, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. In other words, that's why I went as far as I could think the other way, because I knew they would repent. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah was so bent on not going to Nineveh because of their sinfulness, And because of the mercy that he knew that God would show to them. Now, commercial, I also believe that if Jonah had not ended up going to Nineveh, that this book would be called something else of someone who went to Nineveh. Right? Because God is God, and God gives his mercy to who he chooses to give his mercy. And they didn't deserve it or earn it, but God chose to give it. And Jonah got to be a part of that. You see, even Jonah knew that sin was not the defining mark of their story. 
Now, if this was the only blank on your handout, it would be worth it tonight. Because here's what the legalist thinks. That sin is the defining mark of your story. And that is not true. Your story is that whatever happened to you in your past, and whatever you did, and whatever mistakes that you made, and whatever path you chose to follow, good, bad, or indifferent, there was always a God in heaven who created you, who loved you, who pursued you, who orchestrated circumstances in your life for you to be confronted by Him, to meet Him, to realize how much He loved you, to realize the grace that He was giving you that you didn't deserve and the penalty that He was withholding from you because you do deserve that. And yet through His mercy, He decided that you were enough. And that you were good because He is good. And that you don't have to earn salvation. That He loves you just the way that you are. In your dirty clothes, in your sinfulness, in your mistakes. Because that's who God is. That's why it's called good news. And you need to be reminded of that as a legalist. That God loves you not because you're obedient. Because you're not obedient. It's a lie to believe that that is true. Jonah knew that sin was not the defining mark of the people that he did not want to give mercy to. But he knew that mercy was greater than their sin. You see, sin is not the defining mark of our stories. Our story is about a God who pursues us. Christianity, interestingly enough, is the only Religion that sets forth the supreme being as a God of love. Every other religion is based upon doing something to appease, not Christianity. You see, a Pharisee would say, but they're not worthy. A Pharisee would say, they don't deserve it. A Pharisee would say, they haven't earned it. To which we would respond, praise God. Because if it was possible, then we'd be responsible but it's not possible. We can't do it. You see, without God's gracious mercy and compassion, the very qualities that Jonah despised, Jonah was no different from Nineveh in his need for repentance. So how did God respond to Jonah? If I'm God, I would say, uh, you remember the fish? Do we need to go there again? Right? That's what I would have said. But that's not what God said. The Lord God appointed a plant and he made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Ironically for Jonah, (coughs) he was glad for his own comfort, but not for the Ninevites' relief from judgment. Interesting, isn't it? You see... By focusing so much on Jonah and the fish, we might downplay the greatest miracle of all, that the entire city of Nineveh repented and turned to God through a gracious extension of God's mercy. And so I want to leave you with just a few things here tonight uh, that we know about God's mercy, that we see from the story and that we can apply in our application of mercy. The first thing tonight is this, that mercy sees the person, not the problem. You see, God looked at Jonah, and God looked at the Ninevites, and He says, the Ninevites have done a lot of bad things. 
But I created them in my image, according to Genesis 1.26. And I love them, and I'm going to give them a chance to repent. And so he sends Jonah. And Jonah, he runs the other way. And God says, I love Jonah, and I created Jonah, according to 1.26, in Genesis, in my image. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show compassion and mercy for Jonah, and I'm going to give Jonah a chance to repent. And the reality in your life and my life is that you didn't just have one chance to repent. You had a lot of chances to repent. The first time you were exposed to the gospel, you didn't jump up with jubilation and say, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I'll give everything that I know to it, and I'll never make a mistake ever again in my life. That is not what happened. That is not what happened. And so as God confronted you about your sin, the reality of who you are became true in your life, and the reality of who God is became larger and larger until you were confronted with the fact that you could not save yourself and that you were desperate for the mercy of God. And so what God did is he didn't look at your problem, and he didn't look at the Ninevites' problem, and he didn't look at Jonah's problem. Because why? Because there is no such thing as a problem to God. He looked at the person. The people of Nineveh had lots of problems. Their greatest problem was their need for God. You and I, we got lots of problems. But it's nothing for the God that we serve. See, Jonah had lots of problems, overboard, swallowed by a fish, angry at God. And yet God looked through the intentional sin of both the Ninevites and Jonah, and he saw his creation. So mercy sees the person. So in your pursuit of mercy in your life, that you give because you've received, can I encourage you to look past the problem? Now look, I know this as a legalist. It's hard to do. I'm not telling you to dismiss it, because we're going to talk about that in just a second. I'm not telling you to dismiss it. I'm saying, ask God to help you look past it. Because what, what Jonah had to do is he had to look past the fact that the Ninevites were not who they should be. But they could be who God wanted them to be, because of mercy. Number two, mercy does not condone sin. God did not say to Jonah, Jonah, it's okay, man. The Ninevites, they they get a pass. They can do whatever they want. That is not what he said. Mercy does not condone sin. What mercy does is it offers the solution, right? What does Paul say in Ephesians? We were bad. We were terrible. We were chasing our own selves. We were in darkness. And then, but God, right? But God. That's what Paul said that Jesus did. That Paul was on his way, uh, he was on the road to Damascus. And he was going to do what? He was going to kill other Christians. And he encountered God and he had a but God moment in his life. And so what Paul is saying, uh, what Paul teaches us with his life, what Jonah teaches us with his life, what our own life looks like is that God does not give us a pass for sin. Listen, he gives us a solution to sin. A solution. You see, legalism sees sin only for sin. It never factors in compassion. You see, you and I, we don't determine justice. That's God's business. So here's what happened. Because because we are shown compassion. I'm not sure if it's going to come up here. Because we're shown compassion, we show compassion. Because we are loved, we love, right? Because we are forgiven, we forgive. Mercy, however, 
Mercy puts us in the driver's seat of justice. Mercy puts us in the driver's seat of justice. And so what it allows us to do is to say, you know what, that's God's business. And because I've been shown mercy, I am going to extend mercy. You see, mercy is one of the few things in life that we benefit from. And think about this. But yet we're reluctant to give. Think about that. It is one of the few things in life that we benefit from, and yet we are reluctant to give. God has called us to love mercy. Mercy, again, does not condone the sin, but it looks to the solution. And number three, mercy reminds us of our but God reality. Scott, I don't know if you can help me on that last one. It's not cooperating. Mercy reminds us of our but God reality. Here's what happened with Jonah. We, we don't get this story, and that's why I said I have questions. We don't, we don't have the whole picture here. So Jonah was a Hebrew, so Jonah had a history. And, you know, a lot of the minor prophets and some of the majors intertwined in the Old Testament. And so it's interesting to kind of read some of their contemporaries and learn some things about them. But here's what I know about Jonah. Here's what I know about Jonah. Jonah was not born saved because no one is born saved. Jonah had a confrontation at some point in his life with the reality of who God is, right? That's what happens to everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And that if you confess with your mouth uh, that uh, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, Romans chapter 10, you will be saved, verse 9, right? That's what the Bible says. That same thing happened to Jonah. There was a point where he had a confrontation with his sin. He submitted to the lordship of who God was. And he gave his life, or he surrendered his life to follow God. He was a prophet. So there was a point in his life to which he did that. For you, hopefully, that is the same thing. That there's been a point in your life where you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ based on the fact that you are a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that your only hope is to receive mercy from God and not get what you do deserve and have eternal life through grace with Jesus. Amen? And so that's what happened to Jonah. But here's what happened in the midst of that is Jonah forgot the mercy that he had received. Do not be lulled to sleep, church, because you've been given mercy that other people don't deserve mercy. Just because, you know, we showed up and we're, you know, we're obedient and we're disciplined and, and we read our Bible every morning and, and we show up to church on Wednesday nights or whatever that may be that make you feel good about what you've done, the reality is it is the Spirit of God inside of us that is driving us to Jesus. And there's people outside these four walls that desperately need to know that there is mercy. That their failure is not the mark of their life. That God can be the hero in their story. Don't forget where you came from. That there is a but God moment in everyone's story. There was a moment when Jonah was far from God. A moment when he was without hope despite his Hebrew heritage. And it was at this moment that God intersected his life and he offered Jonah mercy. In the anticipation, because he's God and he's perfect, that one day he would send that young Jonah to Nineveh to tell them about the God who gave mercy to Jonah. See, this story isn't the story of Jonah. Your life story isn't your life's. 
You see, this story is about a relentless God who pursues His people. This story is about a God who will go to any length that will use captains and fish and plants to reach us through His mercy. Not that we deserve it, not that we could obey into it, simply because He is that good. Simply because He is that good. So tonight I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you that God loves you and that the rat race of doing is never ending. Receive the mercy of God. How do you give mercy to others? You have to receive it first. Jonah ended up going to Nineveh and giving them, showing them the mercy of God because he knew what it was like. He had just forgotten. And so I hope tonight that you've been reminded and encouraged by the fact that God absolutely adores you. That the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, that those he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. And he will not let up until he accomplishes his mission. That is what God desires for you and for me. And it is because of his mercy that we have a chance to do that. And so I want to encourage you to think about and meditate and pray about the mercy of God and how you can extend that to others. It, seriously, if you do want to talk about legalism, I can probably help you because it's been a journey for me. Uh, but it's been good because God is good. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for mercy. Thank you, God, that you love us in spite of who we are. And that the defining mark of who we are is not what we do, but who...